0: Okay. Failed to mention this morning that um, to, uh, next Sunday, the, uh, the 14th, is going to be our uh, final Sunday in the Holy Word series. Uh, Sunday morning, we're going to look at the, the book of Revelation. Sunday night, we're going to look at 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And by a week from tonight, we will have uh, gone through as a church... Every book of the Bible this year. And, and that's, um, that's a pretty amazing thing. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that what we have done is to, you know, that statement that we use at the very beginning of these messages, that the, uh, the Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it's one story about God, about man, about what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together, that we have seen that thread, that theme from Genesis to Revelation. Now, tonight we're going to look at Second Peter. Does everybody have an outline? you need an outline, please raise your hand. And over here, Matt, we've got a couple and some down here at the front. Keep those hands up and they will make sure that you get an outline. And while we're waiting, open your Bibles up to Second Peter. We're going to be looking at the three chapters that make up this, uh, this very short letter that Peter writes. And we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we gratefully acknowledge all of our dependence upon You for You are the One that sustains us with Your Word. You are the One who has put Your Spirit in us. You have done everything for our sins to the the crime of our sins, the penalty of our sins to be met in the life of Your Son Jesus who was the Lamb that was unblemished and who willingly and lovingly and voluntarily sacrificed Himself taking all of our sin upon Him so that we might receive His righteousness. You are great. And we have sung uh, the 10,000 reasons, and even more than that, Father, our heart swells up to praise You for the greatness of all of the grace that You have poured into our life. And as we, we study this tiny letter tonight, Father, we're asking that You give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it. We pray, Father, that in so doing, that we will discern a good many things for our own life. And, in, and that this Word will enable us, Father, to become more profound disciples of Your Son Jesus, being conformed to His image. Thank You oh so much for it, Father. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you have read the the books of John Ortberg. He's a preacher. He's a writer. He tells uh, the story of one night while they were living in Chicago. He says, Nancy and I were in bed. All of a sudden there was this tremendously loud buzzing noise. I asked Nancy... What is that loud noise? I knew it's the thing, the way that things work in our marriage. If I acknowledged hearing this noise, I would be the one that would have to get out of bed and explore it. So I said, you know, what noise? I had to say it very loud so that she would hear me over the very loud buzzing noise. She said, that noise you're having to yell over so I can hear you. So I got out of bed and I went to the hallway... It was coming from a a smoke detector. I actually think it was the CO detector, something like that. I took appropriate action that silenced it and went back to bed. Nancy asked me what was going on. I said, well, it was the battery. You know how when the battery gets low, it makes a noise. So I just unplugged it. Problem solved. She said, are you sure that it was a low battery? I said, Nance, let's just think about decision making for a moment, shall we? Do you smell any smoke? Do you see any flames? Do you feel any heat? Fire is not undetectable. Let's just use common sense. We went back to sleep. The next morning I got up. I was leaving the house. There was a couple of kind of oddities. The automatic garage door opener wouldn't open. The lights in the hall by the garage didn't work. That's kind of weird. But I got in my car and went to breakfast at a restaurant not far away. About 45 minutes into it, a server came up to me to tell me my wife was on the phone. Our house was on fire. And I might want to come home. It turned out that there was a bird nest that had gotten stuck in the chimney in the casing between the metal and the wood, and it had been smoldering all night long. That's what that little detector was detecting, and it burst into flames. It was all brown. Fire trucks were were all over the cul-de-sac. The wall of the house that was by the garage was covered in flames. It was a disaster. That night, when Nancy and I went to bed at the temporary accommodations where we had to stay while they fixed our house, Nancy said to me, let's just think about decision-making for a moment. (laughs) She had to say it very loud so I could hear it from the sofa where I slept for some time. All of that from just one really bad decision. It's a funny story. Uh, Eugene Peterson has an interesting translation of Proverbs 19, verse 3. He says this way, people ruin their lives by their own stupidity. So why does God always get blamed? A more literal translation of that in uh, the New American Standard is the foolishness of man ruins his way. Unfortunately, you and I both know, people that ruin their lives every day because of bad decisions, they live with regret because they knew better. You know, the reason, that's the reason we have regret is there are things that we know we should have done, we could have done, and and maybe ought to have done, but didn't do it. And because some tragedy or some crisis has hit, we live with the regret of knowing what could have been. But even worse, some of these decisions ruin their souls, and this is what Second uh, Peter is pointing to. He is reminding them on some things that they already know. He says in verse 12 of the first chapter, "I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you." I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I also will be diligent at that time after my departure so that you will be able to call these things to mind. Now, not, not many of us like to live in a context or a culture of negativity. And that may be one of the reasons, or a few of the reasons, why Second Peter and Jude are not widely read. People don't normally go to the Bible and say, you know what, I think I'm going to read Jude today. But both of these fellows are writing to audiences who are faced with some critical decisions about how to live faithfully in a culture that is not encouraging that. And to do that... and perhaps, and and I'm speculating here, they have preached and preached and preached from a positive standpoint without a lot of result. And maybe they're going a little bit negative. They're not pulling their punches in in order for there to be the impact of the message on the heart and the mind and the soul of the people that are reading it. Now what has happened is that uh, Peter is describing some false prophets from chapter 2, verse 1, who have come among the people. And he describes them as the kind of people that really prize sexual freedom. And they're the kind of people that prize material comfort. And they're very prideful. They're full of pride. They're not ashamed of the evil that they do. In fact, they're proud of it. And in some ways, it's showing their maturity. They leave their listeners empty and disappointed. They're desiccated, which means to be dried up, to lack energy. It's an empty message. There's no passion. There's no energy. And they offered what looked like freedom, but it was just another way of being enslaved. And so Peter's advice to them is very, very simple. He says at the very beginning in, ch- in chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these things He has granted to us His prescient precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's the beginning of the letter. At the end of the letter, he closes out with these words, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by error of unprincipled men and fall." from your own steadfastness but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ it's to him that belong glory both now and to the day of and to the day of eternity amen now how do you do that how do you escape the corruption of the world how do you not get carried away by error or fall from your own steadfastness how is it that you're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ well, Peter offers a couple of practical pieces of advice. He says, number one, commit to spiritual growth in your character. Now this, this may be splitting hairs, but I think that it needs to be said. Christianity is more than just a body of facts that you concede to be true. There is more to Christianity than just believing that the message of the Gospel or the facts that are are read in the Bible are just true. There's more to it than that. Christianity is more than just a body of facts that, that we embrace. This is why we cannot allow the word disciple to slip out of our vocabulary. It is not just what you believe, but it's how you live in light of that belief. It's how the gospel gets all the way down inside of your bones, inside of your soul, and changes the way that you live. And so in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, he says, For this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are what? Are what, church? Increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship is, is a character task it is a character endeavor it is about being conformed to the image of jesus it's not just believing what the christ and the messiah believed but it's reacting in the ways that he reacted it's responding to people and to circumstances and temptations in the way that he did it's it's laying your affections on the things that are important to him That's why he lays the diligence and the faith and the moral excellence and the knowledge and the self-control and the perseverance and the godliness and the brotherly kindness and the love. He lays that all on the character development of those that would call themselves Christians. But it's not just spiritual growth in your character. It's not just character development. It's also a commitment to the knowledge of God's Word. And so he says in beginning in verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In one of the really good commentaries on Second. Uh, Second Peter, Douglas Moo, a, a, a very good scholar, writes, We can argue that the danger of false teaching is greater in our day than it has been. Why? Because we live in an era that is deeply suspicious of absolute truth. It used to be that people would argue about what religion, philosophy, or system of ethics was right. English literature classes in college debated about the correct interpretation of Charles Dickens' Our Mutual Friend novel. However, college classes today discuss differing perspectives, often mutually contradictory. That two views in this college class about what's happening in this particular text or passage in a Dickens novel, they may be completely opposite and contradict each other, but both of them are right. That one might validly see in Dickens' great novel, the idea of a correct interpretation is dismissed at the outset. And when people discuss religion these days, they usually content themselves with a claim such as, it works for me, or it's not for everybody, but it's my road to spiritual fulfillment. End of quote. Now what Peter is reminding the readers in his day is that the, God, that the Word of God does not fit into the normal debates of their day, or our day, or any day. These words are not the words of a human, but the words that were first birthed in the heart of God. That the words that we read from the text that we we believe to be inspired were words that were first thought of and birthed in the heart and the mind of God and then they were transmitted by the Holy Spirit to human beings who then transmitted them to us by writing them down. And because of that, Peter says these words have a power. A power that is different from any other word because they are words from God. They have the power to illuminate life. They have the power, when thought and, and read and meditated on and contemplated on, they are like a beacon in a very, very dark place. They draw our attention like no other words. So it's about, how, how do you deal with these, these, these false prophets that have arisen and are, are tempting people away from the truth of, of, of God's Word and, and the will that He has called them to live? You commit yourself to growing in your character. It's a spiritual character. You are a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Secondly, you commit to the knowledge of God's Word. Thirdly, you remember the reality of God's judgment. Now here are where you find the similarities that that you find in Jude and in Peter. Both of these books remind people of the judgments that had happened in the past. And this is where you find a lot of similarities in the the actual wording of Jude and 2 Peter. In chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, You remember, there were these angels that sinned. There were these angels that God did not spare when they rebelled against His will. In verse 5, he said, You remember uh, Noah? There was a period of time when the earth had grown increasingly wicked. And in those days, there was there was Noah who went about his work. But God did not spare the ancient world because of their wickedness during those days, bringing great flood upon it. In verse 6, he says, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the story of Lot. Now, the, the point is not just the negativity of a judgment that is going to be destruction. Notice something important here in the text. In verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare and then he lists the the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah and and the the ancient world during the time of Noah, then by the time you get to verse 9, if God did not spare all this judgment, then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And then finally, he closes out with, remember the Lord's return. Peter mentions back in chapter 1 an event that happened to him while he was with Jesus. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, We do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Yeah, it was quite a day when you go back to the the, the Gospels and read about the Mount of Transfiguration. It was a day that Peter never forgot. It was the day in which he saw Jesus in the glory that he had shared with God in heaven. And for just a moment, he had a glimpse of the brilliance of that glory, that majesty, that majestic glory that he talks about in, in 1 Peter chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and, and about verse 18. He calls it the majestic glory. That, God, that Jesus himself was filled with that. Thought of it often. And I'm sure it sustained him in, in moments of, of difficulty. But other believers, his brothers and sisters, were beginning to forget the stories that he told as an eyewitness of this transfiguration of the Christ and of the greatness of his power and the reality of the voice, the the in Hebrew the the bot call, the echo from heaven that said, "This is my son." And so he reminds it, reminds them of it, that Christ was taken a, a long time to to return. They were growing impatient, and he reminded them. And then over in the third chapter he says, you know, the the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, one of the kind of the, the, the staggering things that you read in that first chapter of Revelation is, is that is that at the very beginning of that book, as John is writing from exile, and, and if there was ever a guy that was that was given an opportunity to, to, to wonder about the coming of the Christ and wondering where it was and wondering what God was doing, it was John who had lived such a long time and now finding himself at the end of his life on the island of Patmos, this big rock out in the middle of the sea, and he's, and he's in exile, and he's in the Lord's Day, and he's by himself, when all of a sudden he is he he is he, he's in the spirit and he receives this revelation from 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 heaven a jesus to an angel to him and he writes it down and at the beginning of that book he talks about you know there is such a greatness that's hard to describe but there will be a greatness that is revealed when Christ comes again and there will be judgment and there will be salvation but there will be judgment and there will be there will be great rejoicing but there will also be great suffering and sorrow but the greatness of that coming the revealing of Jesus again to him was so glorious and so magnificent and so mag- majestic that he said even so come lord jesus peter says you know that Christ is coming and when He comes, there is going to be destruction, but also salvation. Things are going to be destroyed, but people are going to be saved. Things are going to be renewed. New heaven, new heavens and new earth. It says in light of that reality, in light of the reality that the, that the time that we live in, the place that we live in, all of the material things that we touch every day, the things that, that many of us hold dear, that these things are going to be destroyed. How? What sort of people ought you to be in light of that. In terms of the, the way that you conduct yourself in holiness and godliness. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day because of which the, the, uh, in the end of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, it's not just looking towards judgment, but it's also looking towards, as Jesus referred to it in Matthew chapter 19, and verse 28, the renewal of all things. Which is one of those threads, one of those themes that you read throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17. The prophet says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Peter is writing to people that are struggling with what life is like in the first centuries of trying to live out the ramifications of being a disciple. People who have been called by the Gospel to change their lives. In light of their sins being forgiven, in light of the reality of God's judgment, in light of the reality that they have been given away out from under that judgment because of the cross. That the righteousness that the Christ lived, the life that we should have lived but couldn't, the life that He lived being sacrificed on the cross in order for those of us who should have died being given His life and given His righteousness. Struggling with a world that does not match that truth. Temptation, the the, the air of, of wisdom as it floats around and, and is talked about so flippantly. Struggling to persevere, to be steadfast. To, to, to be godly, to, to love, to be generous, to be harmonious, to be sympathetic. To, to, to know God's Word in such a way that it is transformative of the way that we live. Well, when he writes about a place where righteousness dwells, it's not going to be the world where wrong often prevails like this world. But a world where wrong does not exist. And one of the things that I think Peter is is calling his, his, his readers to do is to use a sanctified imagination. You know, the imagination is such a powerful thing. Jesus told these parables all the time to get people to to think outside of the box, to use their imagination, to see visually and figuratively the truth of God in all of these parables that, that had that had faces and and voices and and storylines and themes to understand and, and, and to embrace it in their imagination. And what Peter has done is said, there is going to be a time of, of new heavens and a new earth, a place where righteousness dwells. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? That promise and that truth that comes from God, that is not made up by men, but is is a truth, a word, it is a promise that was first birthed in the heart of God and has been given to us who believe. And not just believing that truth, but allowing that truth to permeate all of our life. That that truth to get all the way down to the very center. We talk about the the old Coke machines where the coin had to go all the way down into the center of the Coke machine. If it didn't, you couldn't access the Coke. But you would listen to it. And if it didn't go all the way down, you'd bang it a couple of times, hoping that coin would go all the way down into the center so that you could access what was there. That's what that truth does. When you meditate and you contemplate and you commit God's Word to memory, and you understand that it's not just memory up here, but it's, it's muscle memory in the way that you live as a disciple. It, it, it's about understanding that, that this world that we are in right now is not forever, but the place where God is, is eternal. How then should you live this day? Ben's going to lead us in a song. And shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are ways that our shepherds, our church, our church can pray for you, our church can can work with you. All you need to do is ask. But what we're asking tonight is to make a decision for the Christ. And if that describes you tonight, then come down and talk to these shepherds as we all stand and praise God together. I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my sa-